Welcome to episode five of Talk Script. Uh, I'm Paul Shannon, filling in for Tori Rice, who is out on vacation. Um, we have with us Neil. I'm just happy to be here. And Nick. Hoi hoi. And we are going to do a great uh, <laughs> deal of complaining about web Tori. technologies. Go us. Oh, yeah, web technology. Tori's gone. <laughs> well, we can complain about Tori too. He, he just cuts it, so, you know, he'll just cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into it, um, I kind of wanted to, to plug kind of a couple cool articles that have, that have come out on uh, our SitePin blog. Um, we have uh, a big series coming out on choosing a framework. And I don't know about you guys, but it's something when I go to like meetups and things that people ask all the time. Like, should I use Angular? Should I use React? <clears throat> hey, what's this new view thing? Should I do something with that? Um, how about Ember and Backbone or whatever? Yeah. People still ask that, right? Yeah. Actually, I think Nick, you article. went to an Ember conference, right? I did last year, yeah. Cool. Was it? Was every? Was the answer satisfied then? Is that the framework you should use? Um, sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Thumbs up. <laughs> this is about as non-committal as you can get. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's that's basically how I answer the question when I'm at a meetup and somebody goes, what framework should I use? I'm like, sure, because it really depends. And so there's a there's been a huge write-up. I think I think the the, the research and the, everything is like a hundred plus pages of of material. It's a lot, yeah. It's it was huge, and and a whole bunch of people uh, helped put it together. So um, there's that, and then uh, we got one on. Uh, higher order React methods, which is a really cool way of saying uh, functions that do stuff for functions. Yeah, and uh, yeah, those are those are both good reads. So I want to point people there uh, while I have the opportunity. Cool. Any other news, guys? Any other cool stuff going on? I know Probably. TypeScript two five is coming out at the end of the month, although it's just kind of a little bump in things. Yeah, it seems like the highlight is just. Uh... Um, you don't have to have better generics. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and you don't have to have the, the error on catch blocks. Oh, nice. Oh, really? That always bothered me. It would always complain. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, here you go. I'm going to ignore it. Slash slash ignore, comment, ignore, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, TypeScript insists I put something there. So whatever. All right, cool. All right, well, let's jump into our first topic then. Um, I actually brought this up with you guys. I kind of wanted to talk about what's been going on with web audio. Um, I've been working on a project for the past uh, few months for, for somebody that um, kind of really wanted to, to do something unique in the web audio space. They, they actually have a whole bunch of audio recorded in a format that's not a common format supported by... Um, by browsers, it, it's actually a, a Speaks audio codec, and um, Speaks is the the predecessor to Opus, which is supported on on all the browsers that support WebRTC because WebRTC requires it as one of their um, codecs. But it's a speech based codec that 
that allows you to really compress audio down um, really low because it's it's just focused on speech and and unlike you know FLAC or MP3, it's not focused on audio. So we've been kind of working on doing crazy things with web audio, um, and we found that web audio really could use some love. <laughs> Uh, it's been in spec now for, I think, five plus years, and uh, it's still been in draft for a long time. And they've got a lot of, they, they keep updating the draft, but but really nothing's been touched for the past couple years. Like, they have, um, they have an idea of adding worklets, which is another kind of draft thing, but they're kind of like little workers that run off of the main thread that uh, are not the full experience of like a, a web worker. They're just kind of like this little worklet thing that runs and, and is, you know, is run off of that main thread. Um, and so like these audio worklets are supposed to like process audio and do things with audio. And um, that's been in the spec for like a couple of years now. And none of the browsers have added it as support. <laughs> so um, if anybody's listening there that does browsers... If you could, if you could get stuff in for web audio that makes it new again, that would be great. Um, like the, we've actually found that it's it was surprisingly fast to do a lot of calculations in in the browser, even on the main thread, which is amazing to us. So so we actually implemented the whole codec um, using animation frames to split out our our processing data so we don't overwhelm. Uh, the the UI threads and things like that 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 kind of makes things flow smoothly and we were actually shocked that that we can do this level of uh, this amount of calculation just how much how much stuff goes into translating a codec into JavaScript and then running it is crazy but we were actually able to do it using array buffers and things like that 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 don't come with the penalties of JavaScript um, in in JavaScript. So anybody that's like looking at WebAssembly or, or things like that, I don't know, things are really efficient with array buffers alone. Um, and it's really crazy how, how much stuff you can do now in the browser. Um, and it's especially funny because everybody still talks about optimizing for performance. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, you guys aren't, you guys aren't writing anything like a codec or anything in the browser, but you're talking about like maybe you should, you know, optimize your for loop or something like that. So it's a, a decrement for loop or you, you use a post increment or something like that. Like I remember having crazy conversations with people about just the smallest minutia. And here we are like processing a whole codec in in the browser. So you, you're saying using array buffers? Yeah. So How does that work? We use fetch to pull off a chunk of, of data from the line. And so we kind of have this chunked encoding uh, just because we, we can't use WebSockets on this one yet. So we have this chunked encoding where we request chunks, kind of like how you would maybe in dgrid request sections of, of data yeah. over the wire. And so we take that and we get it, use fetch to translate it to a uh, an audio buffer because it's just raw data. And then... Um, there's there's two levels to it. There's a, a demuxer, and and a demuxer is is um, how you multiplex multiple things together in the same time. It, it's similar to how you know an engineer uses a multiplexer. You have 
a s multiple streams, but you have like one overall big stream. And so like AUG, what it does is it kind of weaves data in as different pages. So they're all kind of similarly spaced together. Cause you can't get like, if you had like video and audio, you have to get it interspersed. So we have like an AUG um, demuxer that pulls it apart and grabs the pages. And then um, our speaks decoder uh, takes the pages that are our speaks pages. And then it takes the array buffers there and, and each AUG page is split up into different little segments. And each of those segments relate to a number of samples like audio samples, um, which are decoded through our decoder and then they're handed off to web audio into um, an audio buffer. So web audio, at least thankfully, <laughs> has an audio buffer that you can fill, which is essentially a float 32 uh, array buffer as well, that you can fill with data. And then um, you can take that data and push it into your speakers, essentially. Like you, cool. you hand it off to web audio and um, the, the speakers, speakers play based on variance between two points of data. And so when your speaker is like gets pushed in and out, that's that's basically the variance in your the data that you're sending across between one point and another. And then your sample rate is how many samples per second. And um, and all of that is encoded in the buffer. Cool. So yeah, like we're we're um, we're decoding about eight thousand samples 8,000 samples a second. And then each frame of data in, in each page, in which are multiple in AUG pages, is something like 20 milliseconds. And so we're able to decode these frames and keep it performant enough where we can decode a whole page of frames and then push it all into buffers and then schedule it for playback. And then it, it plays back smoothly along with all of our uh, along with we're using on the front end Dojo 2 and we're rendering SVG to render amplitude datas and, and things like that. So it's just, it's literally amazing what you can do in JavaScript. Like I was, I was a, honestly a bit afraid before I started this project that we wouldn't, we would have to do a whole bunch of crazy things um, to get the performance that we needed. And we're at this point now and we're looking at audio web workers, which never made it into the spec. <laughs> we, we had hoped they would, but they never did. And then we looked at regular web workers and we're just, we're amazed that we, we don't even want to touch it because it might uh, create skips or slow down because we had to copy data to a web worker. But a lot of the performance gains you got were from the web API or the audio APIs? A lot of the performance gains that we got were actually, yeah, the, the audio APIs are nice that you can kind of schedule buffered data and things like that that helps keep things flowing smoothly. So it doesn't create pops or anything, you know, with, yeah. with, with sometimes with MP3s, when you're streaming it online, you'll hear pops and things like that. And that's just, you know, it's, it's either poor buffer or it, it, it hit like a, a, a heavy CPU cycle where it didn't decode things well or had enough time to decode it. So it just maybe threw something over the fence. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it came from using array buffers, which JavaScript, a lot of a lot of a lot of processing time in JavaScript happens trying to evaluate what type you're talking about, and so um, when you're when you're using array buffers, there's absolutely no question that you're working with 
a certain data type. Either it's you know an unsigned integer or it's a, a float, but it's all number. And you're not going to try to you know cast it to something else until you get out of that context. And so array buffers essentially allow you to avoid all of that boxing and unboxing that happens that, that JavaScript often does to try to figure out the type. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to unwrap this, this variable mm. and now I'm going to try to use it in this context. Um, and now I'm going to try to figure out the type from the context and, oh, if it's a different type, I'm going to have to like cast it somehow. And so, yeah, array buffers are, are amazing in, in avoiding all that because you get data out of an array buffer and JavaScript's like, this is a number. I know what this is. <laughs> I can treat it as a number now. So yeah. Um, yeah, web audio is still really immature. Um, you can do a lot of cool things with it, but it's really made to emit noise. Yeah. Like, unlike, you know, you might think of like, oh, we're doing like streaming audio and things like that right now with it. But to get there, there was a whole bunch of um, there was a whole bunch of overhead and and uh, coordination that we had to put together, because really these audio buffers are just like a packet of sound, and you hand it off to the speaker, and it goes, okay, I'm going to play this little packet of thing, and have no idea what it is, and then you have to schedule it all together so it actually makes music or words or things like that, and. Um, I can see how web audio would be a lot better in like if you had like a little game or something you're trying to do or you're using web VR and trying to do maybe spatial audio like there there's some support for stuff like that going on right now which is really exciting as well but um we really kind of pushed the envelope and how far you could take web audio and <laughs> you can take it quite far it, it was it was really astounding yeah this is really cool and a good practical example. Uh, everything I've seen is just like build a crazy synthesizer in the browser or <laughs> things like that. Yeah, which is cool in its own, but it you look at it and it 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 only gets you so far, you know. Yeah. Because the synthesizer is like, oh, make a bunch of noises, and you know, to put it together into like an application is is quite a trip. Yeah, if you want to do web audio, there is the whole coordination scheme around it, that's where the, the, the load of work is going to be. Like, um, like if you wanted to change the audio once you've decoded it in any certain way, like all of that requires you to avoid scheduling it for playback until the very last minute. So you can mm -hmm. make those changes in case, you know, in, in our case, in case they, they wanted to make any adjustments to the audio. So like increasing playback speed or things like that have to, require you to wait until the last minute to schedule your buffers, even though you've already decoded them. So yeah, it's, it was quite an adventure. Um, but it's, it's, it's cool and can really use some love from, from the browsers, especially as like web VR gets here, it would be nice to have really nice spatial audio being able to be played back. Yeah. Um, which is, I don't even know if that's really possible to do from an audio tag without a whole bunch of weirdness. Yeah. Like you can, you can pull out an audio tag and then put it in the web audio. Um, but then you lose a lot of control over things. So it would nice, it would be nice to see like the gamepad API has been getting a lot of love 
because of VR, it'd be nice to see web audio get the same. Cool. Cool. Well, that's all I had guys. Um, and it's probably good because our next topic is NPM five. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah. NPM five. Uh, it came out a little while ago and, uh, have you both been using it pretty regularly since it came out? Uh, no, no. no. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used it once and or twice and every time it, it has crapped on me. <laughs> me too. Um, so the client work I was doing, uh, when it first came out, uh, it didn't really work with that. And so I didn't want to mess, didn't want to waste time figuring out why. So I just stayed on NPM four and, and node, uh, seven. Um, but the work I'm doing now, uh, I was using node eight and NPM five, uh, and had a bunch of problems with it. Um, it, it worked okay in the beginning, but then as I started doing more complex things and it mainly ended up being around, uh, NPM link, um, it started breaking, but I thought first we could go over quickly some of the changes to NPM in version five. Yeah. Um, so first, uh, kind of one of the first things is it learned a lot from yarn, which was kind of a split project, um, CLI for NPM, uh, that still use the same registry. Uh, and it was developed by like Facebook and some others, um, that had some good ideas with it and it was a lot, a lot faster than NPM. And so they kind of took some ideas from that, I think, and brought them back to, to really make NPM, um, work better and to kind of win some people back from yarn if possible. And I, and full disclosure, I never really used yarn either, uh, but I did <laughs> read about it. Did any, either of you use yarn? No. I've seen it mentioned on a few of the class online classes that I've taken. Yeah. But never, never messed with it myself. I saw it and then I'm like, oh, well, this is a fad. Let me, if it catches <laughs> on, I'll use it. But I don't need to abandon my, my workflow to use yarn to try to find something a little bit faster if it's not going to catch. Right. And thankfully, it, yeah. thankfully it seems like they've, it's still going but it's still going as like this optional fork that, that can be folded back in and features folded back in. Yeah, totally. Which is kind of like a good open source project, you know, it created, you know, it created an option and, and that option that the good parts of that are getting folded back in. Yeah. One of the things that, that it did was, uh, it had, I think yarn add was, was the command to add a new module to your, to your project. And by default, mm -hmm. that would automatically update, update your package.json. Uh, NPM uh, stole that functionality. And so it does that by default now. So uh, whereas before you might've run NPM install dash dash save module name, mm, yeah. uh, it just does that by default. And you can go into your NPM RC and turn that off if you don't want it to do that. So it goes back to normal, uh, to the old normal, I guess. Um, but that is kind of nice because then you don't really forget what you've installed and you can see it in a git diff of, you know, this is all the stuff that I put in there and then you can go pluck it out if, it, if you were just experimenting or whatever. So that's nice. The other thing is uh, Yarn would create a yarn.lock file. And the yarn.lock file uh, was basically shrink wrap by default, which NPM had, but it wasn't doing it by default. It would automatically generate this yarn.lock that had hashes for all of the modules that you install so that it would, uh, on, on subsequent, subsequent installs, it would um, install the exact same versions of everything so that you always had the same thing and all of 
the other uh, developers working on the project would have the same as well. Um, NPM5 tries to do that with a package lock.json file that gets generated automatically. And um, you can use that. However, I don't really understand it fully because <laughs> every time I run NPM install, <clears throat> it updates itself. And I don't, I don't really understand it quite yet. Uh, so I've actually turned it off. You can do that in the NPM RC. Just because as I was trying to debug NPM, I just constantly had to be doing rm-rf node modules and then rm package lock.json. <laughs> so I just deleted that. So all I have to do is um, delete the node modules directory to, to reset things. Yeah, that, that's the first thing that goes in my git ignore right now because, again, what the hell does it do? Right. Like, it, it's, it's nice to have, I guess, a document of the last person that installed but like it it's just that like how do you merge that like if if you have a merge conflict or or whatever you know two people installed okay great like you have two people working on your project both of them installed if they installed at different times they'll get different package lock files right and then so <laughs> yeah. both of them commit a pr and now you have this package lock file just kind of sitting there saying look at me I'm going to get merged somehow. It's going to be magic. I swear to God, I'm going to pick the right thing. <laughs> I doubt it. You like that is like having that file there non-authoritative is is horrible. Like it's a bad idea. Yep. And you would not it's want to nice as a, or a diff that. Yeah, well it's nice as a it's nice as an an, an informational thing. Like if you wanted to be able to to say I installed and it, it came with a timestamp or something. I don't even know. I don't even know how it would be exactly useful. Yeah. Yeah. So I've turned it off. Um, <laughs> I don't really know much more to say until I figure out how to actually use it or if it's even really useful right now. Um, but some other changes that came to NPM, uh, they have a whole new uh, caching model uh, for caching the, the modules that you download. And I think this was a problem uh, early on when NPM 5 was released. It's on like 5.3 something, I think, right now. Uh, but in versions before 5.3, um, there were problems, I think, with the cache. So you would want to delete the .npm directory instead of your, your home directory yeah. um, to, to kind of fix that. But with those caching uh, changes, it also um, gives you some extra flags where you, when you do an install, you can say, uh, dash dash prefer offline so that it prefer that it'll pull from the cache uh, if it's there. Otherwise, go out and search for it. Or you can do dash dash offline so that it will either install it locally or it won't install it at all and it'll just exit. Um, so that's kind of interesting, um, but it's nice where you you could rely on those caches potentially um, for installing all of your production modules, for example. Can you? If it uses the cache, can it just link to the cache instead of installing a duplicate at my at my node modules? <laughs> That'd I be mean, great. Yeah, that would be nice, right? <laughs> That's uh, another change that came is with npm link. Although it doesn't really seem to be documented, as far as I can tell, uh, the changes, um, and I'm not sure I fully understand it. But I want to be able to use npm link to uh, use a version of a node module that. I may be working on or, um, you know, the team may be working on that hasn't been published to NPM yet, but I still want to be able to use and test those changes within my 
I want that so bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's like half of my day is just relinking things in different versions. Right. And with NPM 5, it actually, um, if you run, if you NPM link things into your home direct or into your um, package, your project, and then you run NPM install again, uh, as far as I can tell, it blows away those links. So you have to go relink everything, um, which is pretty annoying. Um, and I haven't really seen how to, to fix that. Um, and I've kind of just gone with installing the, the tarballs locally to, to kind of work around NPM link altogether. So NPM link isn't working for you. Like it's always, it's worked for me in four, but in five, it's not working. Uh, not very well. No. Oh, that's too bad. That's another thing. Another, <laughs> another mark against it. Yeah. <laughs> there is some good though with it. Um, they, with NPM five, they, uh, also include a second binary NPX. Have you played with this at all? No. Yeah. You're, you're I think you're alone here. <laughs> <laughs> I awesome. barely got past NPM. Like it didn't work for two projects in a row and I'm like done. Yeah. Back to four. <laughs> so I am back to four now, but NPX is something that I actually miss. Um, NPX lets you, uh, basically run a command. You, you know how, if you have a your scripts filled out in your package.json and you have like a a watch script or or um, you know any kind of script like that it will actually when it runs those it will put your uh, node modules.bin directory at the front of your path so it will look there first and use the local modules instead of going globally um, npx lets you do that with anything so you can have like grunt cli installed in your project and then say npx grunt um, test or whatever and it will just pick the local grunt and not rely on grunt CLI being installed globally, which is pretty cool. Okay, but now, that's good. It goes yeah. it goes a little bit further than that too. So any any, it'll basically take the directory that you're you're in and put that uh, node modules bin directory at the front of the path so that it'll find those. But if it can't find those, it will go out and search npm for them and install them into a secret place and then put that on your path and use that. Right away, so you could oh, say secret place, uh, it, it's some secret place in your home directory, <laughs> meaning not not the same place as your globally installed modules. Yeah. Um, so you could say like npx webpack, and if you don't have webpack installed globally or in your uh, project, it will install it and then run webpack and go from there. And you can do um, some things with with the dash p flag on it, so that you can say. Uh, load this in as a dependency and then exec, uh, execute this code with that um, module installed. And so it'll go install that and then execute your, your code. And one really cool thing that you can do with that is uh, there's, I think it's node bin, uh, but there's, there's a project uh, that has all of the old binaries for nodes. So you can say npx-p, uh, node bin at versions uh, v7 and that will then run whatever command that you run after that with node 7 for that next run even if you have node 8 installed that's, that's really nice yeah i i've been using docker for that <laughs> <laughs> i've been using nvm to just switch over to it and then remove it yeah it depends on how long i'm going to be be using it but yeah right this is good for just one-off commands or, or what they say in the, the blog post. Um, like if you wanted to test your node module in different versions of node, you can just quickly do that in a one-off and then you're back in your 
your um, default version. That's that's really that that's actually a nice feature. As scary as running random binaries <laughs> downloaded from the internet are, like I, I wish it kind of did what SSH does. And like the first time you connect to a new host, it's like, oh, this host might be scary. Do you yeah. want to connect? <laughs> yes. I wish NPM would be like, you haven't ran this binary before. We're going to get it from the internet for the first time. Is this cool with you? So if I typo webpack into something that's really a virus, not that NPM has ever had that problem before, <laughs> that uh, it wouldn't automatically run that command. <laughs> So that is actually, it's funny that you should say that because um, I believe MPX has support for um, like just pulling a gist off of GitHub and then executing that. So you can put like, oh, uh, for example, a lot of times on, on new projects that we start <laughs> up here, uh, I'll write a script that kind of installs all of the, the um, or clones all the repos and sets things up. And then I'll just pass out the, the gist link. Well, instead of that, I can just pass... Uh, a command that you run npx and then you know the the hash to that gist and <laughs> then it'll just automatically run that on your machine so yeah kind of going in the opposite direction with uh make up a panic in a little bit <laughs> <laughs> just do whatever you want <laughs> yeah why not i'm gonna run everything you send me in a docker container from now on <laughs> oh my god here just run this gist i I do see that every once in a while. People are like, here's this SH file that you can just use curl and then run it right away. Yep. Pipe and to I'm SH. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh God, I trust you guys, but this is so not what I want to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only one that I ever actually do that with, uh, and I have it set up in my dot files to automatically do, is uh, Homebrew to install that. Ah, uh, yeah. Homebrew's kind of like the the download a shell script from the internet for your whole computer anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I have not used I had to install homebrew recently for something. It was to get it was to get webassembly working. I don't know how but you could survive that, without homebrew, honestly. I use Docker. Huh. I'm like I am not I am not letting I'm not installing random things off of homebrew. And this is this comes from a fear that was like long ago. It's probably that, a correct fear. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, I still use apt and things like that. So homebrew should be not that much scarier. It's just, it just feels different. I don't know why. Maybe somebody can write in and tell me. Somebody hit my Twitter account and be like, "This is why what? you're you're completely like, justified, Paul." Don't, I, if I'm not asking, don't like, write why? <laughs> explain why you feel a certain way. What's that? So I thought you were asking them to explain why you feel a certain way. I was like, I don't know if people yeah. are gonna be able to write in and say that. They're just not really, like really avid podcast listeners. Just psychoanalyze <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. Go through go through our seasons and episodes and be like, this oh, is awesome. why. <laughs> this is this is your timeline of feelings and events. That would be amazing. <laughs> so that yeah. might be a little yeah. No, that that sound I mean, at least if you're you're using apt or whatever, you you're still in the safety of your container and can only corrupt that. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I picked up NPM five when it first came out because, uh, I follow, was it Isaac Isaacs on Twitter? And he had been talking about how amazingly fast it was for months. And I feel a little betrayed. I feel like they kind of pushed out the door to get it in with node eight and to kind of compete with yarn or, or get a solution to their yarn problem. 
And <laughs> um, I immediately had issues. I I, uh, I had a project uh, A-frame that that really wasn't set up great from a dependency standpoint because they were pointed to a few GitHub repositories, for instance, as part of their releases, which is never a great thing to do. You typically want like something that's going to persist forever, but they're they're not a 1.0 yet, so it, it's acceptable or understandable at least. Yeah. And uh, they ended up moving some of those. And so there was like a, what is it? A 303 redirect that's associated with those repositories now that go to the proper repository, which NPM4 has no problem with. But NPM5 just crashed and burned. It just could not follow a 403. And so like, it made me wonder, like, how many integration tests does, does NPM have any integration tests? Or do <laughs> they, like, how do you miss something like that? Like that, it worked in NPM4. You would assume that it would be something you would carry forward. And, and there was just so many bugs that, that I kind of looked briefly and I didn't see any integration tests in NPM. And, and maybe they're there. But it's scary to think that they don't like have automated tests that start up a server uh, that actually do a system test and start up a server and has a 303 or a redirect somehow that takes you to another place and that can actually get that dependency so you can always carry those features forward to the next version. Um, I feel like maybe maybe that's just us JavaScript people not being, you know, test heavy or something, but it is scary. Yeah, I'd agree. It is much faster. Uh, it really is. Now that I'm back on Node 7 or NPM 4, um, NPM installs do go a bit slower. But the main problems that I was running into when using it, um, in one project that uses, uh, I think it was CLDR uh, data, the NPM package, um, that would just fail to install. But if I switched over to no, uh, to NPM4, it would install just fine. And then other projects, uh, they NPM install would run just fine, but when I try and actually run the code, it would tell me that all of these modules were missing, and um, they were. I just don't know how they they didn't uh, get installed properly. Um, it would say like things like NAN, the, the node module NAN is not installed, and then I'd install that manually, and go, and another one is not installed. And so I was just running into all of these issues and spent a good day on it, trying to to not just cave and go back to to NPM4 and Node 7. And then finally, I did. Yeah, I did the same thing. I fought the good fight for a while. And, um, you know, I posted up a couple bugs on the repo. And eventually, there was a mega mega bug thread made for 5.0 that that linked like two pages full of bugs that people had filed in the first like couple weeks and then people were like oh why doesn't this work and they're like everybody should know that a dotto release is like beta (laughs) and it's like no way you guys did not say that (laughs) yeah and then i'm like done i switched i switched back to npm4 um you know one of our guys I think it was Kit said NPM 5.3 looked good. And I tried that, that again and still no traction. So I'm waiting. I'm rooting for them. I really want a good release, but so far I haven't, I haven't got that one that does everything that I need. Yeah. So is there something really major that went wrong with the point out release? 
I I I don't know for sure, but there was some some big problems before five point three, and I think it might have been with uh, the cache changes, and then five point three plus deleting your .npm directory uh, kind of helped fix that. Um, but there's still obviously some issues, and I don't know if it's necessarily npm's fault or if modules need to update to change things. It seems bad if modules need to update to change things, but. Yeah, I was I mean, playing with npm 5.3 and uh, I was having all of these problems. Yeah. I think for projects that use npm, it's fine. But you have to make sure that all of your dependencies then use npm. Like if, if that's the requirement that, hey, npm works okay, we're thumbs up, and you add a project that depends on a project that doesn't use the npm, somewhere down your dependency chain, um, I think that's when you start to get into problems. Can you give an example, maybe? I'm trying, I'm trying to picture um, something that doesn't use NPM. Oh, yeah. Well, again, like A-Frame, you know, has a few things that are unreleased that are modifications of, like, like polyfills and standards okay. that, are, that are very, like, forward-looking beyond spec right now to do things like... Um, custom elements is a big part of A-Frame. Okay. And so they have the custom element polyfill and, you know, between VO and V1, which V1 is now the standard, there was some differences and, you know, there was some fixes that needed to be made and, and things like that. And so when you, when you hit that corner case and you need it for your product, <laughs> you tend to release off of GitHub. I mean, you can release, people really should release off of a named, uh, like a scoped NPM release, but that doesn't always happen, you know. I almost feel like they should filter NPM releases, so everything released should now be off of like an another NPM release, so you have an artifact that is never changing. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, because if it's on GitHub, it can get deleted, it can go away, if it's on NPM, at least after the first hour, it's there forever, you know? Right. Unless it's tagged, and then who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and it complicates things, too, with projects like, um, like releasing TypeScript code on NPM, for example. Uh, for example, like Dojo 2, we do that, but we build it to UMD. Right, so you can't actually just uh, install from GitHub because you need the built the built code. Is that right, or am I just not thinking about this correctly? The distributed code, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can you can always dump it. You can always dump the distributed code on GitHub. True. A lot of people do that. Like uh, one of the projects we use uh, does that. They have a dist folder. Don't want to name names, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they have a disk folder. <laughs> um, you know, like th those those things like TARS and stuff like that are there for flexibility. And I think flexibility is great. But once you get into the NPM repo, like if you try to if you try to deploy to Maven Central, they have a lot of rules that require a certain structure and a certain level of um, care be put into what you're you're putting out there. And, you know, just having the ability to say, okay, 
internally in your own repos or your own, you know, GitHub, you can definitely use like a GitHub link for your dependency or a tarball even or whatever you want. But when it hits that repo, if it's not an artifact, that's just going to end up being a bad experience for most people at some point for some project. <laughs> Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> well, do you have anything else, Nick? Or should we call it a day? Yeah, no, that's it. I'm not as clever as Tori, so I don't have any game shows or <laughs> or funny things to say. I, uh, I hope I brought everyone through well today uh, and just kind of made it uh, a good podcast. And maybe next time Tori will not plan vacation in the middle of our podcasts. Or we can do it on location. He, he was supposed to send us plane tickets, you know. Speaking of, we have our next 30-minute segment where we just tear Tori apart. <laughs> that Tori guy. If you don't hear that part, it means Tori cut it. So, so yeah. yeah. Tweet at him. It's proof. All right, the, here we go. The canary. Let's, let's talk about Tori. It's a canary warning. What do they call it? Okay, everybody, thanks for the podcast. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Man, you guys really let him have it. Yeah, that was, that was nasty. That was, that was cathartic. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to plug our Twitters. Uh, I'm at Developer Paul. Uh, Neil, you're at what? Potted Meat? Yep. And Nick, it slips my mind. What are you at? Nick Nisi. That's hard. That's tough. Oh, yeah. So if we got anything wrong, um, tell Tori. And if we got anything right, you know, you can contact us at this source. All right. Cool. Thanks, everybody. I was rolling down the window because I like to feel the wind blow. We got a good thing. Gonna see where the day goes. Take it fast, take it real slow.